Well, as you read and study Scripture, every once in a while you come across a passage that is so compelling and so convicting that it captures a special place in your life. You uh, may take that piece of Scripture and write it in your journal and commit it to memory and share it with friends and family and turn to it first when you find your life falling apart for comfort and guidance. Well, I found two such passages in the book of Philippians, and we're going to look at the first one this morning. Philippians chapter 2, you can turn there now, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is really a passage that needs no introduction, no funny story. Uh, It is so uh, convicting and so relevant and at the same time so full of poetry and beauty that it has captured the hearts of the church for 2,000 years. This really is actually one of the most famous passages in all of church history that we'll study this morning. The whole book of Philippians is powerful. All of it is relevant. All of it is instructive. And yet this is the gem. This is the the heart at the middle of the book of Philippians, the gold that motivated Brian and I to teach Philippians. This is it, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So look with me, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others." Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want us to look at this famous passage a a little bit out of order this morning. The the big idea, the central command is not found in verse 1, it's found in verse 2. So we're going to start there. We'll come back to verse 1 later. Let's start with the the big command, the, the big idea that Paul has for us. It's a command made up of two parts. The first part of this command, Paul says, make my joy complete. Now, we've read Philippians enough by this point to know that Paul was a pretty joyous guy. In the short span of these four chapters, he's going to use the word joy or rejoice, same word in Greek, 12 times. He's an incredibly joyful guy, which is remarkable because remember, he's in prison. Now, if I'm in prison uh, unjustly, I'm going to need Prozac to make me happy. Paul didn't. He He was happy. He was rejoicing every day because he saw God at work in the lives of the Philippians. He saw God working through them. And yet, Paul was not as joyful as he could have been. Because he saw that trouble was brewing in Philippi. He saw that a problem was developing in this church that was serious. And the threat of this problem stole some of Paul's joy. So he says, hey guys, make my joy complete or perfect. Fulfill my joy. And here's how. By being of the same mind. That's really the central idea. This passage isn't really about making Paul's joy complete. It's about being of the same mind. 
That's a very significant phrase that we have here. The, the verb that's behind that is the Greek word phreneo. It appears three times in verses two through five of our passage. It's really like the most important word in this passage. Uh, it refers to one's attitude, one's mindset. It's, it's thinking a certain way. And Paul challenges the Philippians to have the same mindset, to have the same attitude, to unify together around the same way of thinking. In other words, he's saying, hey, all of you guys, you need to bend your minds towards the same preoccupation. You you need to orient yourselves towards the same fixation, the same goal. What is that goal that they're bending their minds around? Oh, remember chapter one. Why are we here? To share the gospel. That's the only reason you're on this planet, to share the gospel. That's the one goal of the church, of Christians, is to share the gospel. So Paul's saying, hey guys, orient your minds, fix your minds around a preoccupation with the gospel. Unify around the gospel. That's really what Paul is talking to us about today. He wants us to unify around the gospel. So again, we're getting to the theme of unity, to the need for unity. And that's not new to us. We're not even halfway through the book of Philippians. This is already the third passage that focuses on our need for unity. Okay, Back in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, verses 3 through 8, he talked about our need for unity. Then in the passage we studied last, verses 27 to 30, Paul told us the primary way you live as worthy citizens of heaven is by being unified together around the gospel. It's all about unity. Paul keeps beating this drum over and over again. Be unified, be unified. Why is he doing that? Paul's already talked about unity. Why are we going back to it again this morning? Well, here's kind of how I think about this. When I I was at seminary, I had a professor, Dr. Jeff Bingham, and and he had an interesting childhood. Uh, Jeff is the son of missionary parents. And so throughout his childhood, they were stationed all over the world in very remote areas. When Jeff was 11, they were stationed in Madagascar, an island off the coast of Africa. And at the age of 11, Jeff developed a new fixation in life. He desperately wanted to be a Boy Scout. That was his goal in life. He wanted to be a Boy Scout. Jeff had already read the Boy Scout manual from cover to cover. He desperately wanted to be part of a Boy Scout group to go do things that Boy Scouts do. There's only one problem with wanting to be a Boy Scout in Madagascar. Not not a lot of Boy Scouts there. There was no troop to join of Boy Scouts in Madagascar. So Jeff's daddy got creative. He went and, and did some research. He found out that the Boy Scouts have a program for just such occasions. It's called the Lone Scout Program. You can be a Boy Scout and a troop of one person. So Jeff did that. Jeff formed his own troop, a, a Lone Scout troop. Um, and, and all was going well until Jeff started to do the things that Boy Scouts do. He went camping alone. And, and at the campsite, he pulled out his, his uh, hot dogs to roast over the fire alone. And he held troop meetings alone. Attendance was really easy. Jeff Bingham, here, that's it. Meeting's over. There's, there's nothing to do. Well, this idea of a Lone Scout program, it sounds silly to us. It sounds absurd because we know the essence of Boy Scouts is being in a club with other boys. Boy Scouts isn't Boy Scouts without boys. That's the whole reason you join it. Well, so it is with the church. The church is not the church without a community of believers united together around the gospel. The the essence of church is community, is unity, us unified together around the gospel. That's what church is. You don't have church. You You can buy a building, you can call it a church, but it's not a church unless it's filled with believers unified together around the gospel. That's the essence of church. Unity is essential to Christianity. It's essential to our walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The primary way that we fulfill God's task for us, sharing the gospel with others, is through our unity. Our unity together in love is the primary thing that proves the gospel to this sinful world. If we don't have unity, then we have no business sharing the gospel because we have no proof for it. And now, not only is our unity essential to accomplishing our mission of sharing the gospel, but then in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Jesus tells us that not only is unity essential for getting the gospel out there, but unity is essential for worship. If you're not unified together, you can't worship God. God will not accept worship from a group of people who are divided. We first must have unity, then we can have worship. So unity is essential to what it means to be a follower of God. You can't walk with him if you don't have unity with one another. So obviously unity is pretty important. That's why Paul will beat that drum over and over again. In fact, from cover to cover of your Bible, every author of scripture will beat the drum of unity. We must be unified together or we got no business being here. Unity is essential to Christianity. So they'll hit it over and over again. So Paul's going to talk about unity often in the book of Philippians. We'll see it over and over again. But our passage this morning is really the crux of what Paul wants to say about unity. This is really the core of his teaching in the book of Philippians about unity. Because he doesn't just tell us to be unified in this passage. He doesn't just give us the command. He goes beyond that. He tells us how. How do you grow and nurture unity in your church? He tells us how to do that in the next couple of verses. And then he'll also tell us why. Why should you put in the effort to be unified together? He'll give us that, verse 1 and then the end of the passage. So we're going to look at, at not just what, we, we should be unified, but we're going to look at how. How do we grow in unity and why? Why should we pursue unity? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to start with the how. How do we pursue unity? Well, obviously, as Paul feels like he needs to to address our need for unity over and over and over again in this book, unity must not come easily to us. If the Bible has to address our need for unity from cover to cover, then unity must not be our natural position when we get with other people. Now, as sinful human beings, unity is not our default position. Actually, disunity is. If you follow your instincts, if you follow your natural inclinations, you will not unify with one another. You'll be disunified. That's what our sin does to us. We need help. We need God's guidance to grow us in unity, to help us overcome our natural bent towards selfishness and disunity and instead forge and nurture and grow unity in this body. So Paul gives us that how-to. He tells us how to nurture unity because it doesn't come easy, it doesn't come naturally, in a four-part answer. Really, the next four phrases of the passage are Paul's four-part answer to the question, how do you nurture unity in your church? So let's look at that for a minute. Let's look at these four answers Paul gives. Number one, Paul tells us that we grow or nurture unity by maintaining the same love. That's the next phrase in verse two. We grow unity by maintaining the same love. Now, literally, he's saying by holding to or clinging to the same love. He's implying that love also doesn't come naturally to us. You have to cling to it. You have to hold to it because it's not easy. Now, the word love he uses here, it's agape. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 9. And when we're studying that verse, we define love as this. Agape love, God's love, is not a feeling. It's a choice. 
a choice to place such value on another person that you willingly sacrifice self for their good. You willingly sacrifice your rights, your desires, your comfort, your possessions for them, to bless them. The essence of agape love is giving, giving of myself to the one I choose to love. That's the idea of love. So Paul is challenging us. If you want to grow your unity, number one, you have to choose to love. Just as God chose to love us, so we must choose to love one another. That's the first step to building unity here at Grace Bible Church. I want to get practical for a minute. What exactly is Paul calling us to do? I think what Paul is saying, and and I think God through Paul is saying to us, each one of us needs to choose to love everyone else in this room. Now, chances are there are people in this church who have hurt you in the past. There are people in this church who you have personality clashes with. There are people in this church that you just don't get along with well. Well, God's not saying you got to be best friends with them. But he is saying you must choose to love them. Whether you like them or not, you have to choose to place such value on them that you willingly sacrifice self for their good. There is no person in this room that you are excused from loving. You're called to love everyone here because that's how we build unity. First and foremost, we choose to love one another with the same love that God showed to us. And remember, when, when Jesus showed us that love, we weren't very lovable at that moment, were we? We were sinners. We were rebels, and he extended love to us. So we have no excuse but to extend agape love to one another. That's how we build unity. We choose to love one another with the same love that God showed to us. That's step number one. We get step number two in the next part of verse two. Paul says, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's actually one big idea. Uh, Intent on one purpose, that's that verb phreneo again. Paul is saying, think the same way, have, have the same mindset with one another. But Paul's not repeating himself here. He, he mentioned that earlier because he adds an adjective. He adds an adjective at the beginning of it, united in spirit, or literally in Greek, of one soul. How is it that you become intent on one purpose? Well, by being of one soul. The idea of being of one soul, it's the idea of living in harmony with one another, of thinking as one person. To live in harmony with one another means that, um, you, you know, we all have our, our own stuff, our, our own desires, our own goals, our own agendas in life. That's okay. To live in harmony with one another means that I take all of those individual things and I put them in second place so that I can keep first the thing that we unify around the gospel. Harmony means that even though I have all my own opinions, own pursuits, own stuff, I don't let that trump our unity around the gospel. So the second step in growing unity in our church is choosing each of us to live in harmony with one another. And let's get practically. And what exactly does that look like? On a group this large, I can guarantee you that we have plenty of stuff to disagree about, whether politics or how to raise our kids or how children's ministry should function or how the music should be up here on the stage. We have plenty of stuff to disagree about, and that's okay. You can have your own opinions on all of these subjects. They can be strong opinions. And you can disagree with one another, and you can even argue with one another in a godly way. But to live in harmony means that that at the end of the day, you take those disagreements and you set them aside and you link arms around the common goal of sharing the gospel. You keep those things secondary. 
All those personal things, those personal opinions, those personal pursuits, you keep them second. You don't let these opinions and disagreements divide us from unifying around the gospel. There's no person in this room that you shouldn't be willing to link arms with and share the gospel. Even if you strongly agree about politics or raising your kids, you can still agree about the gospel. And that is most important. The gospel trumps all of our personal opinions, all of our personal agendas, all of those secondary things are worthless compared to the gospel. So living in harmony with one another means that we can disagree, we can even argue, but we set those arguments aside at the end of the day and unify around the gospel. We work together to share the gospel. That's the idea of living in harmony with one another. That's the second part or second step to living in unity. You grow unity by choosing harmony. Okay, the third step that Paul has for us is found in verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Paul contrasts here two different ways of thinking and acting. First, he tells us what not to do. He uses a couple descriptions here. Number one, he wants us not to think and act out of selfishness or selfish ambition. Uh, that word means, um, kind of, it's kind of looking at the attitude that says, my own goals, my own pursuits in life are more important than our pursuits. Selfishness means I put my agenda above our common agenda. It's to put in individuals above the community. Paul's saying don't do that. Second, he says, uh, in addition to not acting out of selfishness, do not act out of empty conceit. Empty conceit means to have too high an opinion of yourself. To have an inflated opinion of yourself. You could translate it vanity or conceit. Okay, both of those words, selfishness and empty conceit, they look at self. They're focused on self. I am promoting myself. Paul says don't do that. Instead, just the opposite. Think and act out of an attitude described by the word humility. It's really one of the key words of this passage. Don't think and act out of selfishness and empty conceit. Instead, opposite, think out of humility or lowliness of mind. Humility, as the Bible defines it, means to have an accurate estimation of self. You see yourself, you evaluate yourself accurately, neither too high nor too low. Biblical humility means that you see yourself as a creature made by God, dependent upon God, and everyone else equal to you. Humility means you say all of us are creatures made in the image of God. That's where our value comes from. I don't need to promote myself. Because I'm made in the image of God. I can promote you because we're made in the image of God. Now, it's really interesting when you study this word. Uh, in the Bible, when the Greek word that we're translating humility appears, it's pretty much always positive. You, you, you want to be a humble person, right? Humility is a good thing. Everywhere else in Greek literature that this word appears, which is often, it is always negative. No one in the ancient world wanted to be humble. They looked at humility as shameful. Why would I want to be humble? Life is about promoting self. And one way or another, rising in success to be above you. So nowhere else in Greek literature is humility a positive thing. It's always shameful. That's really no surprise to us. Humility goes against the grain of this world. In any society, it runs against the grain. This society teaches us, this world teaches us, above all else, to worship self. And one form or another, to promote ourselves. And humility says the opposite. Humility says, I'm made in the image of God. I don't need to promote myself. Instead, I'm going to promote you. And look at how humility expresses itself. The, the rest of the phrase, 
Regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's what humility does. Now, I'm not a big fan of this translation. Paul's not really saying more important. We're all equally important. What he's telling us here is regard one another's needs as surpassing your own. He's talking about rank here. We're all equally important, but choose to put others above yourself. Choose to rank their needs above your own. That's what humility does. Humility says I'm made in the image of God. I don't need to promote myself. Instead, I can promote your needs. I can raise your needs up above my own. I can raise you up above my, myself. That's what humility does. So the third step in growing our unity as the body of Christ is choosing daily to act out of humility. To see ourselves accurately made in the image of God and therefore not needing to promote ourselves, but instead promoting one another. Now, Paul's not done uh, fleshing out this concept of humility, so he continues in the next verse. Verse 4, he gives us the fourth step of growing in unity. Look with me. In verse 4, he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, notice what Paul's not saying. Paul doesn't say, hey, don't look out for your own interests, so you could translate that needs. He's not saying it. He's assuming that you are looking out for your own needs, that you're taking care of your personal needs and the needs of your family. What he doesn't want you to do is just take care of your own needs, to just look at yourself. Instead, also take care of the needs of others. What Paul is challenging us to here is, is a balanced life. We give the same energy and effort and resources to meeting our needs as we do to one another's needs. It's, it's balanced. I, I take care of my needs and the needs of my family, but with the same energy, the same effort, the same resources, I take care of your needs as well. That's the idea here. I'm taking care of both individual and group needs, community needs. I, I think the, the word that I would use to define this concept is really selflessness. That's the idea of selflessness. I don't just take care of my own stuff. I take care of your stuff. I take care of you too. I put your needs on par with my needs. Paul's challenging us here. Step number four, we grow our unity by practicing selflessness. Humility and selflessness, very similar ideas. I want to give a a practical application here. Let's step back and look at number three and four up there. Verses three and four. How do we apply those in our lives practically, concretely this week? I'll give you a, a couple things, a couple challenges here. Both humility and selflessness are calling us to prioritize the needs of others, the needs of one another in this body. Well, step number one, if I'm going to prioritize your needs above my own, then I need to know what you need. I have to know your needs if I'm going to meet them, if I'm going to prioritize them. We have to know one another's needs. So I'm going to challenge you guys. Don't look at this gathering on Sunday morning as a performance, that you come and you hear Ross and you hear me and then you go home. That's not what this is about. This is a family meeting. This is us getting together as a family of Jesus Christ and getting to know one another's needs. I challenge you guys, show up early. Come here early. Often we'll start service and the room will be about a third full. I know that's going to happen particularly today because we lost an hour last night, but it's not healthy if it's happening every Sunday. We need to get here early so we can get to know one another, so we can know one another's needs. That's how you do family. That's how you do unity. If you're showing up late week after week, we cannot be unified together. Body can't be unified when you don't know one another. So please be in this room at least five minutes early before service. That means please be in the parking lot 15 minutes before church begins. Now, I know that won't be every week, but please, on average, be here 15 minutes early. Drop your kids off. Come in here and ask the people around you, What do you need? How can I pray for you this week? 
And then after the service, don't rush out. Stay. Stay in here. We're not going to kick you out. You can stay around for five or ten minutes and ask the person next to you, hey, how can I pray for you? Maybe there's a student in your row. Maybe there's a parent in your row. Just ask. That's not a threatening question. Hey, how can I pray for you this week? That's how we find out one another's needs. That's the first step. You can't practice humility and selflessness if you don't know the needs of the people around you. So first, we've got to know one another's needs. And then second, once we know each other's needs, we need to set aside time and money to meet those needs. We need to set aside time and money to meet one another's needs. Okay. When I say money, I know money's tight right now, but I think it's really interesting. Um, in the financial crisis that's going on in our nation, we're all looking to the government to bail us out. That's so not the Bible. The Bible says we're one another's bailout. You're looking for a bailout, find it in this room. This is where you go for help, not to Uncle Sam. We're to help one another. Set aside money, even if it's a little bit of money. This isn't money you're putting in the offering plate. That's something separate. This is money that you are setting aside to give to another person in this room when they're in need. We should all be doing that. That's what the church did in the first century. Do you know that there wasn't a poor person in the church in Acts? wasn't because they weren't preaching to poor people. It's because as soon as someone came into the church, you gave to them. You gave to meet their needs. They weren't poor any longer because you shared what you had with them. So let's set aside money for one another. Let's be our own bailout to each other. So give. If somebody's lost their job, what can you give them to help them keep their home? If someone has medical bills stacking up, what can you give them to help them pay those bills? Okay, so don't only set aside a little bit of money to give to one another, but set aside a little bit of time. Set aside time in your week to care for the needs of one another. Maybe there's someone in this room who's struggling. You can go help them, maybe repair their house, maybe mow their lawn, maybe babysit their kids. Maybe there's someone sitting next to you who's really lonely. They feel alone and discouraged. Maybe you can set aside some time to take them out to coffee, take them out to dinner and build a friendship with them. That's what it means to do community, to live in unity with one another. We give. We give of our money and our time to one another. This isn't an offering plate thing. This is about you setting aside time and money to give to other people sitting next to you when they're in need. That's how we practice humility and selflessness. Get to know one another's needs and then set aside time and money to meet those needs. That's how we do church with one another. That's how we grow in unity. As you you look at this list, love, harmony, humility, selflessness, you've got to see none of these things are easy said a few minutes ago that unity is hard. Unity is nothing compared to trying to practice these. There's not a bone in my body that wants to be humble. There's not a day that I wake up and rejoice at the thought of being selfless. These things don't come naturally to me. My natural bent is opposite of all four of those. These things are hard. These things are painful. These things demand sacrifice. What, what was the example we were just giving? Sacrificing time and money, things that are precious to me for the good of others. These things are hard. These things cost us. So why should we do them? Why should we practice what is painful? Love, harmony, humility, selflessness. Well, Paul answers that. He gives us lots of motivation in this passage. He knows these things are hard. And so he tells us why they're worth the price. Why is it worth the pain and suffering of love, harmony, humility, and selflessness? Well, Paul gives us three reasons. Three answers to the why question. You get the first one in verse one. Paul tells us that love, harmony, humility, and selflessness are worth the price, number one, because of what we have already received in Jesus Christ. Look at verse one. 
He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, uh, when Paul says if in this verse, he really means since. It's it's a rhetorical statement. He knows all four of these things are true. Uh, Let me reword them for you. These are all four things that we have received as believers from God. So as a believer, is there any encouragement that you get because you are united to Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I am often encouraged because of my relationship with Christ. Okay, is there any consolation or literally comfort that I get because of the love of God for me? My gosh, yes, I don't have a little bit of comfort. Every day I'm comforted because the infinite God of heaven and earth chose to love a sinner like me. Now, all four of these statements are not a little bit true. They're a lot true. And that's Paul's point. Verse 1 is reminding us that we are rich in Jesus Christ. We have already received infinite spiritual blessings through Jesus Christ. We have everything in him. And because of our richness in Christ, we are free to give. You see, when you feel poor, you do not give. I'll give you an illustration. About once a year, uh, Julie will bake for me my favorite dessert, a, a chocolate mocha pie. And um, I, I love this pie. It's very precious to me. Uh, and, and because I love it so much, and because I only get about once a year, I am very, very reticent to share it. I, I don't want to give you a piece of my pie, because the piece I give to you is one I don't get to eat. And if I give away too many pieces, there'll be none left for me. I feel poor in regards to pie. And so I don't share. Okay, but imagine with me, what if Julie could work some magic and, and create for me an infinite mocha chocolate pie? A mocha chocolate pie that never ran out. Every bite that I ate or gave to you, it just grew to make up for that. What if I had infinite pie? Well, um, number one, I'd be really fat if I had an infinite chocolate mocha pie. But number two, I would be free to give. I would be freed up to share it with you because the more I give away, the more I got. It's never going to run dry. Well, that's Paul's point in verse one. You have been blessed infinitely in Jesus Christ. And so you are free to give. You have infinite encouragement and comfort and fellowship and affection and compassion through your relationship with Jesus Christ. So you can give. God is never going to leave you high and dry. He's already given you infinite blessing through Christ. That's the beauty of the Christian life, the beauty of Christian giving. You can never outgive God. The more you give, the more he gives to you. He's already given you infinite amounts through Christ. The more you give, the more you experience the infinite richness you already have in Christ. So you're free to give. God will never leave you high and dry. Now, obviously, I think that applies spiritually speaking, but I think that applies materially speaking too. It's hard to give money in the the times financially that we're in, but guess what? God will take care of your needs. When you give, he will take care of you. It may be hard. He's not promising to give you a mansion, but he will meet your needs. You can never outgive God. He will take care of you. He has blessed you infinitely through your relationship with Christ, and so we are free to give. That's our first motivation. I can embrace love and harmony, humility and selflessness because I am infinitely rich in Jesus Christ. That's the first motivation. The the next two motivations are both found in really this incredibly famous passage, verses 5 through 11, this hymn about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. It's going to give us our final two motivations. Buck covered a lot of the theology in this hymn last week, so if you didn't get it, you can go listen to the podcast. I'm going to focus more on what it teaches us or how it motivates us to embrace harmony and and love, humility, and selflessness. So look with me. The second motivation that Paul gives us 
is we can embrace humility and selflessness because of what Christ has done for us. Look with me, starting in verse 5. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul is, is putting forward Jesus Christ as our model, as our example to follow. Uh, that word attitude is the same word we've seen many times now, phreneo, have the mindset or attitude, the way of thinking that Jesus Christ did. Let's look at the mindset of Christ as it's illustrated in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 6 is telling us two things. Number one, uh, he has always existed in the form of God. Jesus has always been equal with God. Form means essence or nature. Jesus has for all eternity been in very essence God. He is fully God. He is equally God. And then number two, even though he is freely God, he did not use his divinity, his equality with God as a thing to be grasped or better translated, a thing to be taken advantage of. That's what it literally means. Jesus did not use his status as God as something to take advantage of. He didn't use his rank as an opportunity to accumulate honor and possessions and fame. Instead, what did he do with his divinity? Well, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, Paul tells us he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't give up his divinity. He didn't give up his, his infinite attributes. He, he limited himself by taking on a new nature. Jesus was always by nature fully God. In his incarnation, he added a new nature, humanity with all its limitations. Jesus was like us in every way. Just one exception. What is that one exception? That one difference between us and Jesus. Jesus never sinned. He's like us in every way, but never sinned. That's why Paul says at the end of the verse, made in the likeness of men. He's not identical to us because he never sinned, but he did in becoming human embrace all the limitations of humanity. Suffering, pain, weakness, temptation, he experienced all of it. Jesus became a human being and embraced all of our limitations, but he didn't just become any human being, did he? No, he became a bondservant, literally a slave. Jesus became a lowly carpenter in a tiny backwater town. Not the king he deserved to be, no, a humble man, a slave. Jesus left the beauty and bliss of heaven. He, he sacrificed his rights and prerogatives as deity to take on the flesh of humanity and embrace our limitations, our pains, our struggles, our temptations. But that's not all. Look at verse 8. Look what else he did. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was enough that Jesus left heaven to come walk among us. It was enough that Jesus embraced our limitations, but Jesus went beyond that and willingly died in our place. He suffered death for us. And it wasn't just any kind of death, was it? No, literally here, it was a cross death, death on a crucifix. That's interesting. When you look at the cross in the ancient world, a crucifix in the ancient world, it was a symbol of shame. It was the most shameful and painful way to die. Um, shortly after Jesus, a great Roman uh, writer named Cicero said, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. 
To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. No one in the ancient world wore a cross around their neck. We do it. We, we wear crosses as jewelry. We put them on our buildings as architectural decoration. In the ancient world, no one did that. Why? Because it was a symbol of shame and humiliation. It was, it was the most painful way to die. It was what, what you gave your worst criminals as their punishment. It would be like us today wearing the symbol of an electric chair around our neck. That's what the cross is. It is the ultimate symbol of pain and shame, the worst possible way to die in the ancient world. And yet Jesus willingly embraced that for us. He knowingly walked to the cross for us. That's why Jesus is our model, the ultimate model of humility and selflessness. Not only did he leave heaven, the son of God, full deity, to walk among us in limited flesh of humanity, but he willingly walked to the most painful, shameful death imaginable on our behalf. That is the model of selflessness. You want to build unity in the body of Christ. You do so by following the example of Jesus Christ. But not only is he our model, he's also our motivation. When I compare what I am giving up to meet your needs, Do you see how tiny it is compared to what Jesus gave up to meet mine? I have to give up my rights. I have to give up my desires. I may have to give up some money, some time. What is that compared to what Jesus gave up on the cross? My sacrifice is nothing when seen in the light of the cross. So what Jesus did for us is a motivation because it reminds us, hey, we aren't giving up anything compared to what he gave up. Yeah, I should embrace humility and selflessness, love and harmony because Jesus gave up more than I will ever understand on my behalf. That's motivation number two. And now finally, motivation number three, embrace humility, selflessness, love, and harmony because of the reward that it will bring us in the next life. Look with me, starting in verse nine. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has always been deity. He's always been equal to God. And yet Paul says, for this reason, because Jesus in obedience to the Father embraced humility, God the Father gave to Jesus the ultimate reward. He gave to him a new name, the name Lord that Ross was talking about up here. Uh, this passage that we just read, it's, it's almost a direct quote of Isaiah 45, where all of this worship is, is attributed to Yahweh, to the God of the Old Testament, to God the Father. This is worship that belonged to God the Father. He gives it to the Son. Because of the Son's humiliation, God the Father will cause in the future all of creation to bow the knee and worship him. Even those who nailed Jesus to a cross will on that day bow their knees and worship him as Lord. Because of his choice to embrace humility, Jesus has earned exaltation. He has earned glory. And there's a principle there for us. Now, verses 9 through 11, they're not going to be true for any of us. No matter how humble you try to be, you're not going to be worshipped as Yahweh. That's for Jesus alone. But there's a principle here. If you choose humility now, you will be rewarded with glory later. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
Now, that proper time probably won't be in this life. Humility is not often rewarded in this world, but it is in the next. So you can either, you can have your glory now, or you can have your glory later when it lasts forever. If you choose to give up your glory now and instead embrace humility, God will reward you with glory, with honor in his eternal kingdom. If we embrace humility now before one another, then when we stand before God, he will exalt us. He will raise us up before him. Humility now brings the reward of honor later. That's why it's worth the price. Yeah, I'm giving up a lot right now, but that's nothing compared to what I'm going to enjoy for all eternity as a consequence. So what have we looked at this morning? What have we learned from this, one of the most famous passages in all of Christianity? Well, it's teaching us, it's calling us, it's challenging us to pursue unity as a church body to unify with one another around the mission of sharing the gospel. And the way that we build that unity is by practicing love for one another, God-like love, by living in harmony with one another, subjugating our personal stuff, our individual stuff for the good of the community, by practicing humility, and by practicing selflessness. As we do those four things, we build unity here in the body of Christ. But those are hard things to practice, so Paul gave us motivation. Do those things because you are already infinitely rich in Christ. What you give up now is nothing because you already have infinite riches in Christ. Embrace humility and selflessness, love and harmony, because Christ gave up so much more for you. And embrace these things because they bring reward for all eternity. Paul is challenging us to a very high standard here. (laughs) Very high standard. He's challenging us to follow the example of Jesus Christ. God who became human, who died for us, the most shameful, painful death imaginable. That's the example to us this morning. This is meant to be an incredibly challenging and convicting passage. God is calling us to follow the example of his son. That is the one and only way to unify this body together and accomplish the mission that God has us on earth to do, to share the gospel. Let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we um, walk out of this passage now with a desire above all else to glorify you, to worship your son, Jesus Christ. We praise him that he is equal to you, that he is divine, that he has always been God, and that he freely chose to become human, to embrace our limitations, our struggles, our pain, to walk among us, and not only that, but to die in our place. Thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for how that both empowers and motivates us now to die to self, to serve one another. Lord, I pray, please, Father, through your spirit, convict us and challenge us in the weeks ahead to die to ourselves, just like Jesus died to self, so that we can serve one another, so that we can love one another and live in harmony, so that in humility we can be selflessly serving one another. Please, Lord, help us to get to know one another well enough that we know one another's needs. Help us to be willing to sacrifice what we have to meet the needs of each other. We pray, Lord, that you would unify us as a community bent on the sharing of your gospel. We pray that you would make us effective so that the people of Bryan College Station and throughout the world will hear your gospel, will see you at work in us, and will believe. We pray that all of this would work to your glory and to the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.